Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's going on, everybody? It's another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And uh, we were off last week, but we're back tonight. And joining us, as always, from Texas is Jeff Kopsetta. And, of course, from Alabama, Mr. Henry Sledge. Jeff, how are you doing tonight, sir? Great, man. I want to say happy three-year friend anniversary to you. Oh, Met you three years ago. Facebook reminds you of that? <laughs> no, it reminded my wife of that. <laughs> oh, so your wife reminded you of it. That's, that's the hierarchy of Facebook. Um, <laughs> I didn't remind you because I rarely go on Facebook other than, other than to post post. But happy three-year anniversary to you too, Philip. So I was yeah. basically like four days early when I posted that montage on Instagram the other day, huh? I could have played that off like I planned it that way, but I didn't. I just was looking for something to post well, on the. No, I think I think we wrapped out there. I think it was like the seventeenth or eighteenth of March. So I just happened to pull that out at the right time. Yeah, I guess so. It's amazing how much a lot of us changed in those three years. Going back and look at that photo of the four of us sitting in front of that that U-Haul truck that night on Matt Lachey. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were just talking about that, of course, last uh, or a couple weeks ago when I saw Josiah. Uh, that was the first thing when when I saw RJ coming out of the hotel. When we, were, we were getting to check in, and uh, he goes, "Hey, I'm gonna get you guys a nice room with a balcony so we can make it look like somebody's being on Josiah again." <laughs> <laughs> Henry, how are you doing, sir? Doing fine. <clears throat> doing just just fine here in Central Alabama. Alabama. Honing in on my son's spring break, so we're gonna hit the beach next week. So your your kid's spring break starts next week? Uh yes. My daughter's yes. is this week, so we're our school district apparently is a, about a week ahead of yours. We today was their actually Friday was her first day, but the teachers had um in service day, and so mm-hmm. today is the actual full blown spring break. So Carrie's off work, the kids off work, me not so much, but that does kind of put me in a pickle where they want me to get off early so I can try to go out and do things, but you know, it doesn't always go as planned, but anyhow. So Jeff, you had a pretty exciting weekend. You've been uh, in the planning stages. You guys decided, hey, before this big event, let's just go ahead and remodel this joint. <laughs> and so how did that all work out for you? It it finally it finally came together, like I said. I, so today well tomorrow the students here go back to school today was like a teacher and service day so i can catch up on grading and everything uh so yeah there wasn't a whole lot of break in my spring break um starting last saturday it was okay we're down in the nitty-gritty you know d-day minus seven coming up to the uh to the the 30th annual blue bonnet air show and of course that's the day i picked to reopen the museum that's been closed for for two months and um you know i got in some ways, I got a lot further than I thought I would. And then looking back, you know, once it's hard to picture what I wanted until you see a couple thousand people go through it in one day. Um, so I know what I need to change. Uh, I know what I need to freshen up. Um, but man, it was awesome. Um, so last year, we broke our record in 29 years for attendance at 4,100 people. You know, that's not a big venue at all, 4,000. Um, but it, you know, we're a small little air show and, and, and I said it a few times in my presentations on Saturday, like, Hey, you know, thanks for coming to the biggest little air show in Texas. Cause we really do. We put on a great air show. And, um, this year we really harped on, um, 
some some more ground acts, you know, from from our living history group here, Company B. Uh, so we had to do multiple multiple ground acts, weapon demonstrations, things like that. I had a surprise um, tribute presentation at the end uh, that I'll talk about here in a minute. And um, you know, we we pushed out a lot more social media wise. Uh, in fact, our the air show coordinator now has a TikTok account. Don, you'd appreciate that. Woo! Uh, because I told him, he's like, man, we're pushing a lot on Facebook. And I was like, dude, that's great. You know, Facebook's but dead though. It's kind of, yeah, like if you're trying to attract kids and talk about the things that we're doing for kids different this year, mm-hmm. Facebook's not the platform unless you're hoping that their grandparents will tell them when they're on their Facebook, you know. Well, it's uh, sorry, not only it's not only that, but to, not to get too mild down into the tech thing, but the reason Facebook is losing its ass and its stock is plummeting, about seven months ago, Apple's phones actually made a huge change to their users' privacy, which as far as what sort of information allows third-party apps to track. And one of the things it did is it locked down a lot of the um, stuff that Facebook would use to track people's browsing habits so they can turn around and sell advertising revenue. And Google said, hey, that's a pretty good idea, except for we'll, we'll still, still allow our stuff to track it. And so basically Android, which is owned by Google and Apple, they have both um, put in this new s- security kind of preventing our phones from spying on us so much. I mean, we've all been there where you'll be talking to your wife in your car about, hey, let's go get some pumpkin pie. And then you're on Facebook, the best place to buy pumpkin pie in Central Texas. Like, huh? Yep. And so they've cracked down on that. And it has had such a major impact on Facebook. I think I was reading this morning. They're again over the weekends. Their stocks have plummeted. Where like their employees are hauling ass going to other tech companies. So when I say yeah. Facebook's dead, I don't mean it only as in young kids aren't using it as much, which they're not. But as far as using it as a form of advertising, which we've taught in the past, not only now are they not getting the advertisement revenue they wanted, but now they're going to go as far as preventing people from like us having our content seen for free they're going to start forcing you know more and more pages like the what's the scuttlebutt podcast and our our quote-unquote business pages they're going to start forcing us more and more to try to pay for people to see our our views and um so it's just dying on the vine so it's probably a good thing they got a tiktok yeah yeah and you know like i said you know i run the little instagram page as best i can to just kind of help get some some more action out there and of course you know thankful that i get to talk about a lot on on the podcast here because you know, there's a lot more people listening to this podcast than I realize. I'm starting to get a lot more followers from from the UK and things like that. That, you know, just uh, it's just really cool. It's it's cool how we're all connected. So, so yeah. So you know, last last year 4100. Uh, this year 5660. We were just not prepared for a a huge increase like that. I mean, we were hoping to break the record. We had we had kind of joked around. Oh man, if we had five thousand, that'd be great. And and yeah, we we went well over five thousand. By two um, p.m., Jeff was scrambling to get three more porta potties on site. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, we had we had plenty of those because we we kind of learned that lesson from last year. We uh, I don't know, we like quadrupled the amount of uh, food vendors. We cut out the car show only because that's the only real estate we had to put a huge food court. Um, but I did manage to, uh, have, I got a buddy that brought his DeLorean. I brought my DeSoto out there and just had a guy just happened to have a 67 Mustang on his trailer going somewhere. And he was like, Hey, I thought y'all usually do a car show. Like, no, not this year, but what do you got? Okay. Bring it in. <laughs> and he was just, you know, as, as pleased as could be to, to come park next to it and, and hang out for the day. And, and then I pulled 
some resources from some local military vehicle uh, groups here. It had 12, uh, about 12 vehicles that range from M151, M37s, all the way up to five tons. Had a, a Bosnian VOV, um, just just all kinds of stuff like that. And um, we had, it, it was just, it was great. The biggest thing, the biggest thing I was proud of though, is have a contact with somebody that we've talked to quite a bit. We're going to get her on uh, on an episode one of these days, but she's uh, one of the uh, movers and shakers with Operation Meatball, travels the world with these World War II vets as kind of their, uh, part of their entourage, you know, and uh, she's just been doing this as far as I know her all adult life. So she's got some amazing stories. She's known hundreds of vets and she's down in San Antonio, not too far away. So reached out to her and said, hey, if you could get me a couple guys that would like to come out. And she <laughs> she told me the morning of, she goes, I, I'm just laughing at how this is snowballing. She said, I think I've got like 10 World War II veterans that are coming on this bus with us. Nice. Well, and, that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and I think we had two others that were fairly local as well. And, and one out of Houston. Um, and I, so it was it was incredible. And I'll, I'll show you my. My son had a, had a great idea to have uh, his his liner signed by all the World War II vets that he met there that day, and then uh, and it's it's a good liner there. Don, nice. Now you're lucky. No, I was um, looking to see if you uh, were lucky enough to have a silver sharpie, but uh, black works as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is what it is. Yeah. But um, no, it's still a great so, idea. Yeah, it was it was great. And then uh, his one of his other buddies that was dressed had the inside of his steel pot signed by the same guys as they were talking to him. So it was, it was really great. And the, uh, the last tribute we did, I, like I said, I kind of held off to the end, but you know, harp a lot on, on the greatest generation. And, you know, we had general Patton out there talking and we, uh, we demoed a couple world war two weapons. And Denny was nail was out there. What's that? Your, your buddy, Denny nail, Denny hair. Yeah. Denny hair. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Denny hair. Yeah. Okay. He came out and, and, you know, handed him the mic for, for five or six minutes to let him get everybody pumped up, came out with the command car and the siren, you know, and all that, all that jazz and cool. had our Dillard sisters singing. Uh, so it was great. Um, but at the end, uh, like I said, I wanted to do kind of a one final send off before the A-10s came over and blew everything up. Uh, I said, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about the greatest generation, but there was another generation that came after and, uh, you know, another generation of fighting men. That had to answer the call, go to a faraway land, fight, bleed, and die. So I said, uh, you know, if you're a Vietnam vet or a Vietnam era vet, or if you know a Vietnam vet, this is for you. And turned around and had a buddy behind me with his Vietnam era flamethrower, just painting the sky with that thing, you know, right there in front of everybody. And you know, you could just you could see the emotions running pretty deep. You could see all the Vietnam vets there, and just did a big send off to all those guys and. And we had a couple guys there in Vietnam era uniforms, my son included. He looked like he just came off the set of platoon, except he had my big yellow first cab patch on his on his first patterns there. But um, it, it was the best air show I've ever been to because I got to be an integral part of it and also enjoy it. You know, I've worked a lot of air shows lately. I, I don't you know, you don't get to like hang out, you know, <laughs> or I don't. When you go to an air show, I, I'm a big part of it. Um, but I've never been that big a part of an air show and then still get to go walk over and hang out with my wife for, and, and hang out with the kids for a little bit or talk to some of these World War II vets, shake their hands, tell me this, that 
for them that this was the best air show they'd ever been to. Nice. You know, one of them was saying, man, this is just crazy. I couldn't imagine it any better. I'm shaking his hand and there's a Marine Corps PBJ, you know, B-25 banking like this for a photo pass right behind us. You know? I was about to ask you, uh, what sort of air uh, demonstrations did you guys have over there? Yeah. So, you know, we actually started it off with that MiG-17 all but knocking everybody's socks off coming in at like 600 miles an hour with afterburner on. I mean, it was, it was insanity. Um, that was, that was kind of the first aircraft that, that ooh and odd, but I don't think people realize how loud jets are when they're flying that low. I yeah. mean, cause I've been out at, you know, sun and fun out here and a few of the air shows. And I'll be quite honest you, like after day three and you're in there and it's, 2 a.m. Uh, I mean, 2 in the afternoon, and they're it's like, okay, enough with the jets. My head is killing me because they are loud. And after day three, you're just like, okay. The- no, yeah, we we started off with it, and then we ended with the A-10s, but everything else was a, was a prop job in between. The C-47, that's all brother, was there. Nice. In fact, they had the jumpers come out of that with a big American flag coming down with an SNJ blowing smoke oil in circles around the jumper with the American flag while the, uh, while the Dillard girls are, are singing the anthem. So like, couldn't be, couldn't be any cooler than that. Um, I was going to say, I don't and, care how many times you've seen it. There's nothing cooler than seeing a stick of 12 coming out of the back of one of those planes. It's just, so oh, yeah, cool. yeah it, it was every bit of, it may have been bigger than that. It was, it was a good size flag, but, um, had some SNJ T6 type stuff. Uh, had a C45, BT13, um, and then you know, like I said, then the A10s come in and do their thing where they look like they just sit, hit the air brakes, and then take off, and then pyro goes off everywhere. And uh, then they do the honor flight where you see an A10 banking with a bright shiny P51 coming by everybody. Mm-hmm. You know that was that was kind of how the, the air show ended. Hey, I saw a picture. Was the PBJ black? It's a real dark blue. Dark blue. Okay. Yeah. Where, where's that thing out of, man? I, that's awesome. They had a PBJ there. Uh, Georgetown. Uh, so okay. about 30 minutes east of here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're they're really cool. And and so when she goes up, um, uh, they do a, like a do little tribute. Nice. So they'll kind of talk about how important. And we we had another B25 that was supposed to be there, but they canceled. But, uh, you know, she flies over a couple times and you see the Bombay doors open. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, all this pyro goes off under it, you know, and makes a few passes as they're kind of narrating about the Doolittle raid. And then, uh, you know, she'll do a few photo photo passes where she's just standing on one wing. It's mm-hmm. about as slow as that airplane can fly past everybody. And, well, no, yeah, not, to, it was awesome. not to get too behind the scenes, but it's not very often that people have the opportunity to talk to somebody who organizes air shows. When it comes to those pyrotechnics, does each playing group, quote unquote, have their own guy, or do you guys hire in somebody and they say, "Here's what we want to demonstrate"? And how how does that how does that logistics actually work out? Yeah, so and I mean, obviously, I couldn't speak for, for every air show, yeah. um, but I, I have worked uh, this one and then the one up in Dallas, the big one, Wings Over Dallas Air Show. And as far as I know, it's the same group of guys. They call themselves the Blasters. Um, and uh, they, they just do a tremendous job. I don't know. There could be air acts that maybe contract their own. Yeah. I, that's That would be news to me because it's everything from the CAF aircraft that we're using, that they're using the pyro for, like 
Devil Dog, the PBJ, and then the A-10s come in, and same thing. You know, then they're the Air Force demo team, but it's the blasters that are sure. blowing everything up. So, um, yeah, the the logistics is these these guys just really know their job really well. They know their box. The uh, you know the pilot briefing is a very intense briefing the morning of where everybody knows where the crowd line is, the max elevation and you know all the different areas that they have even parallel to the runway in the event that they have an issue and they have to put down somewhere. Um, you know, we've got some pretty large lakes around us too. If that had to happen to actually try to make water landing, if that needed to be done. Um, and then flip side of that if we did have an issue where we catch stuff on fire which happens probably every single time i mean we put in black you know we, we put it we do a prescriber in the day before try to burn out all that 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 dead grass that dry stuff but it happens spot fires happen and you know we we've got helos that can come in and dump out of one of the lakes and just you know if they had to um so yeah, that, that's pretty much the logistics of it. Pretty cut and dry. They're just guys that really know their thing, and it's blasting caps, debt cord, and diesel fuel. Yeah, I was gonna say that's what you need for that yep. black smoke is a lot of diesel fuel. Yep. Yep. Are you doing like the whole air show announcer thing too, or is there somebody who does that? But, yeah, no, we have we have a contracted announcer that I work uh, very closely with. Mm-hmm. Um, he does the majority of the air show narration of all the air acts. Um, but then him and I, of course, so I did like four different presentations. So he brings me out pre-show to kind of introduce myself, talk about the museum, pump the crowd up for what they're going to see. He kind of runs that as a commercial throughout the air show. Um, and then, like I said, brings me back on. Um, so we just kind of, and, and then there was one time where we kind of did a kind of a little bit of a back and forth, you know, Hey Jeff, um, Tell you know you you open the museum today. What, what's some of the things that people could see there? What's your favorite artifact? Uh, what should they look for? Stuff like that. Just a little bit of narration, just to kind of you know you can't just have an airplane land and or, or take off and then land and then another one's right behind it. Like you've got right. you've got some fillers in there, and that's usually where my ground acts come in. But sometimes you got to stretch, or sometimes you got to condense. You know, um, and that's the hardest thing from my perspective. When you're running a ground demonstration team at an air show, you can't say, okay, guys, here's the run of show. I need you, you know, we're going to rally up at 1040, 1245, and 1350. That's when we need to meet up because everything is a sequence. You know, the aircraft don't really have a hard time because um, I know right after the first couple acts, we were about six minutes ahead of schedule. And you're going to kind of keep that pace unless somebody goes long. Um, so you, you need to be able to just, it doesn't matter what the time says, if you follow this act and you see that act in the air, I better rally the troops and get weapon, you know, get weapons ready and get ready to grab a microphone and roll right through as if nothing ever happened. So, yeah. And I think that's a great example of things we've talked about in the past here when it comes to living history events and, um, and re- you know, public reenactments. People think, oh, okay, you just go out there, you run around, shoot some blanks, fall down, and and everybody goes home. No, it's it's kind of like a play. It is in fact a production. You have, and in your case, you have a ground show, you got an air show, you have trying to get people inside to see your displays and you know everything you've just worked so hard two months doing that, you know, it's more than just opening the gates and saying, Come on in, have fun. It's 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 a production. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and we, we have a little saying within the squadron, it takes a village and it certainly does because just in our VIP tent, you're, you're feeding 125 people plus all of you know, all the World War II vets. We just kind of, we, we let them come in there naturally, you know, so that's a lot of other food that you're trying to prep for, um, you know, all the other vendors, all the stuff that it takes to just line it. The logistics are unbelievable. And, and one person, could not do it. It, yeah. it took a team of 50 or 60 of us probably um, to actually be able to run everything we did. And one of the one of the really nice assets we have now is the cadet program that we just started in, in January. Well, officially in January, we pinned our first cadets in October and then we pinned, I think, four or five more at the air show right at the start. And and he means pins them. He does the whole thing where he takes the bag off and punches it into their chest, and you can see it bleed through the T-shirt. And, of course, yeah, there's, I, there's liability disclaimer signed before the whole thing by the parents. But, you know, he they're really into it over there in Texas, I'm telling you. I wish. I wish, man. I still have <laughs> scars in here, man. No joke. They, they're not allowed. You know, they, they, I don't know. That's just that's a forgotten thing because mm. I, I actually had an opportunity to pin – one of my volunteers, he made staff sergeant at Fort Hood. It was great. But the new army uniform, it's a little piece of Velcro that yeah. has the rank on it. You know, right I was here in the middle. And, you know, attention to orders, need that attention and everything. And I'm handed the, you know, the little patch. <laughs> and I just look at him in the eye and I'm just holding because he knows exactly what I'm thinking. Like, dude, this ain't nothing like how it used to be. Yeah, you feel like you're putting went, a gold sticker on a gold star. There you go. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I saw this great TikTok video this morning. It was a side-by-side -side comparison of the first day of Marine Corps boot camp versus first day of the new nicer Army boot camp. And they start with the Army. The guy, the drill sergeant comes on the bus. He goes, welcome on behalf of whatever camp it was. If you see anybody in this hat, this is a drill sergeant. The first thing, you know, the last words out of your mouth will be yes, drill sergeant or no drill sergeant. Okay, well, when I say get off the bus, the women, just nice, you know, just like I'm talking, I want the ladies to get off, they're going to go on the vertical lines on the left, the men, you guys want to go in the vertical lines right, paperwork's going to be in the left hand, okay, you got two minutes to get off the bus, because the Marine Corps, they're all, the bus is loaded, kids are sitting in the aisle, they're on, the drill structure goes off, he goes, welcome to Paris Island, get the fuck off my bus, God, and like, it was completely like, holy hell, it was like, yeah. it was complete transition. And it was like, yep, there's a big difference between the, the newer modern boot, army boot camp versus the Marine Corps. It was hilarious. Yeah, they, they called that the, the, the shark attack, man, because that's when you don't exactly know who your drills are at that mm -hmm. point. You just know that you don't want maybe that guy or, or that big dude over there. You don't want them to be your drills. And usually they, they typically are. But, um, yeah, I, I thank goodness every day looking back at the time that I served that I got to experience that because yeah. what an incredible transition it's been in such a short amount of time. And, you know, you'd think, okay, over 20 years, everything changes. Like, okay, I'm sure the guys in the, in, you know, in the sixties and seventies, like, Oh man, those guys had it easy, blah, blah. But I've never met, you know, even non-vets have told me I've sat at, at lunches before, you know, unit reunions. They're like, I don't know how y'all did over there back then. These are guys that hung out in the jungles of Nam for three years. You yeah. know, like it, it, it's there's this commonality all the way through until about maybe ten years ago, five years ago. I don't know what the transition was, but then it just and I have nothing in common with any of the you know any of these guys that are serving today. It's just it's so foreign. You know, um, we didn't talk about so much on this podcast, but there was like two weeks ago there was an article came out. 
Um, I forget what's published. I saw it through third party, but basically one of the commanders who heads up um, boot camp, I don't know if it's the Marine Corps or the Army, well, for sake of conversation, we'll say Army, and they're saying the problem they're having is not so much motivation, it's the physicality. These young kids, because you know they're not allowed playing tackle football in school, most of them, you know, they don't go outside and clean, climb trees like we used to. They're not falling down off their bikes as much as we used to. They're physically seeing that their bones are weaker than previous generations, where in following boot camp arenas where they would have the occasion They're doing this yeah yeah well and, I, and don i've heard that yeah. i've actually heard that man yeah, the there's the areas of boot camps where in jeff's generation they would maybe twist an ankle or sprain a leg they're literally seeing broken bones in areas of the in the same exact regiment where you know they may have had two broken bones per you know season and now they're having eight or nine like their bones are physically not as dense and not as durable because they didn't have the time between you know kindergarten and high school where they're breaking bones riding bikes or playing football and all that they're bone and there's density. probably a lack of physical fitness too yeah. can't do as many push-ups and all because they're just not as physically active yeah yeah and, and in all fairness because i'm sure there's some there's some younger cats listening to our podcast right now that probably showed off like screw you guys you know nah. yeah, I, I get it and in, in, in their defense let me tell you i did join a peacetime army yeah i didn't have to be there and, and what i mean by that is they didn't need me to be there. So the graduate the graduation rate was not high on purpose because we don't need you. Yeah. You gotta yeah. really you yeah. gotta earn it, you know. That, so that's a good I, point. I will say that. I mean, I know the cycle before me um started the, the platoon is before me in the cycle that I was in started with 56, they graduated 17. Uh we started in my platoon the following cycle, you know, my cycle, we had 63 graduated 36 and then september 11th happened and you graduated 100 percent. yeah i mean they, oh, they needed yeah. boots on the ground it you you push them through it's somebody else's you know it's somebody else's problem and the transition happened you know like i said i was so my basic training was 17 weeks long it was from june to october so put september 11th in there wherever that was week eight or nine or ten whatever it was um that we had a big squadron uh, uh, formation, you know, right after that was like, and our squadron commander came out there, Lieutenant Colonel Honoré, I'll never forget. He said, you don't, don't beat them, don't starve them, don't touch them. You train them and you graduate. And that, that started a whole different army because I had a whole new set of drills come in. You know, I think I told you guys a story. They were all either fired or ended up in Leavenworth because of what they did. Whole new set of drills. And, you know, they didn't touch us. We got three meals a day. Everything was great. And we went to war. So we've been at war ever since in some capacity. So I think now that's why you're seeing kind of this citizen army that we experienced. This is this is the army of like 1978. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. They don't need you. Nobody wants to be here now. So the only way they're going to keep you in is like, yeah, you want to, you're a girl. You want to have a ponytail and paint your nails and lip lipstick no problem you know so that's that's the army we're seeing it's that peacetime post-war everybody's burned out the, the 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 gritty soldiers are gone you, you you know or they're like crusty old e9s and you've got these young ncos coming up through the ranks you've got young officers you've got company commanders that have probably never seen a day in combat 
But and they're fielding a company of Joes that, you know, they're clueless at this point. And it's not, I'm not bashing today's army. I don't no, want anybody and, to not, think that. Not, neither am I. But what I was going to say is I think it's going to be interesting to see how that changes in probably four to five years from now. Because I just started noticing. Now, it may be the fact that I just changed my membership from Planet Fitness, which I kind of consider cardio gym, to Crunch Fitness, which is more, you know, muscle building and all that. But... I was talking on what's in your head last week. I have seen, and it, and it brings a smile to my face, to be honest with you. Um, I have seen a staggering number, and I think it's a lot of these high school kids who, you know, have heard so much bad mouthing about the generation before them, their brothers and sisters. I am seeing an inordinate amount of young cats, not even cats, but the girls. I mean, these girls are doing the squats, they're doing all like the, uh, they look like CrossFit chicks, but they're like high school girls. And so, there is a whole generation of um, young cats and uh, girls who are just hitting that gym and they're just in there every night. And so it'd be interesting to see because everything ebbs and flows, right? You know, um, the greatest generation, their kids were the hippies and then the hippies kids were the, the yuppies in the eighties. And then, you know, my generation in the nineties with the uh, grunge and then things, you know, every generation kind of rebels against the generation before them. And so it'll be interesting to see as this younger crew come through who are now, getting tired of hearing about, you know, fat Americans and this and that and everybody being lazy. It seems like more and more, and you see it on Instagram too, there's, especially amongst the women, a lot more of them are getting into the, the fitness stuff and just blowing it out. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes in another five years when that generation comes through. I mean, I thought the same thing because I, I look at, I look at kids like my son and, and, and his two best friends that one of them was out there in a, in a Wehrmacht uniform and, and one of them was out there in a fifth Ranger bat World War II uniform. Yeah. These are 15, 16, 17 year old kids that are absolutely rebelling from that um, stereotypical kid today that just wants to play video games, never had to work for nothing. I know Henry's son isn't like that. You know, I know my son isn't like that. Son and my daughter. No, my daughter is. We've been having major problems. Oh <laughs> uh, no, literally, like <laughs> we actually went on her Xbox the other day. Said, "Ask your friends that they would rather sit here or go out kayak fishing." She wanted to go fishing. We had to put screen time on her Xbox because, like, on spring break, she's like, "It'll be noon." And she'll Don, already, how old is your daughter? She's fourteen. It'll be noon on <clears throat> Saturday, and she'll already have eleven I, hours on the Xbox. If, if I can jump in. Well, just a little bit of perspective here yeah, to, to kind of, you know, my son's 13, so he's a little, a little younger than your son's Jeff, but I, I am super proud of the kid because he, he's now we, at one time when he was eight, nine, 10, we would have to limit his screen time. Now the kid's racing mountain bikes. Mm. He's doing morning football workouts to play football next year. And he just started playing Joy League baseball. And I say Joy League because it's real laid back. He's not, you know, he played hockey back when most of his friends were playing baseball. So, but he doesn't play ice hockey anymore. But speaking I, of I really, bones, my wife and I talk about that. Huh? I said, speaking of dense bones, grew up playing hockey. He's rugged. Well, I mean, he, he would rather be, you know, there's a creek across the road. He and his buddies will go run around over in the creek. And he plays video games too. We don't. You know, we don't forbid that, but it, it's like, it really is kind of cool to see the older he gets, the more into physical activities he seems to be. And so to your point, Jeff, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see that Don, maybe your daughter, you know, like you guys said, things ebb and flow. I, there was a time when I thought, 
man, Jack will never do anything physical. He'll just be a video game kid. Fortunately, that was several years ago. So your daughter may. Yeah. She was a know, little late to the party that. because, you know, we did adopt her three years ago prior to that. She never had access to that. And so now she's late access okay. to that. But it's like, it's like, kid, if you, it's noon on Saturday. You've already been on Xbox for 11 hours at noon. It's like, we got to do something about this. And so, but yeah, so that's been the struggle here. Um, Henry, you uh, attended yes. the um, Libraries of America online class that we've been promoting here. How'd that go? The uh, the seminar, not class, but seminar. Yeah, yeah, the webinar with Richard Frank and Elizabeth Samet, who was the editor of, of the trilogy volume that included my dad's book. And Elizabeth Samet teaches English at West Point. So um, that went really well. Uh, and in fact, Taco and I had a conversation about that. He was like, man, I was listening to it, Henry. I was expecting you to be on. And I was like, no, I, I was never going to be part of that. That was really Elizabeth Samet's conversation, you know, with Richard Frank. But it, um, I think it went really well. I, I, you know, waiting on the lobby card there visually before mm-hmm. the event started. Beautiful What's the Scuttlebutt podcast logo. Um, you know, and my name on it too, because I was kind of the sure. one they contacted to help them promote the thing. But, um, I hope our, our podcast got some good exposure out of that. No, I'm sure it did. And I'm sure the numbers will reflect that, but yeah, I just wanted to, to touch up on that and see how that went. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a good conversation. It went really well. My mom was watching from her place. Um, and yeah, good conversation. I think it's, you know, great to have my dad's book in the trilogy of pacific war memoirs so um yeah it was, it was a good thing man oh uh, did it do, 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 do i um had another one of your pre-produced things going i was actually going to open the show with it but i don't think i loaded it so we'll save that for next week um let me do this and then we'll get in the mail call we haven't done a mail call in a while so i was on actually we, we were off last week so let me back up the last weekend so last weekend I was on uh, Netflix around midnight, and I saw the remastered redu- Redux version of Apocalypse Now. I'm like, well, this might be a good watch at midnight. Now I know it's three hours long, but it's midnight. I can go to bed at three in the morning. Little did I know. <laughs> so I fire up Apocalypse Now, and I thought I'd seen this movie, and apparently I, much like everybody else, I'd seen clips because there's a lot of it I didn't. I hadn't seen, and even though it's the remastered, they only added 20 minutes to it. But I'm watching it. Okay. Enjoying it. Pausing. Okay, it's 1.30. Got a little bit of time to go. 2 o'clock. All of a sudden, it switches to 3 a.m. It's like, oh, damn, time change. I'm going to have to finish watching this movie in the morning. I don't want to be up watching Apocalypse Now until 3.30 or 4.30 in the morning. But uh, if you guys haven't seen I know it's not World War II, but if you guys haven't seen that in a while or haven't seen it at all, um, it's an interesting take, and it it's blows your mind to how much Charlie Sheen looks like his dad. Because when Martin was his age, he looked just you know Charlie looks just like his dad did when he was that age. But uh, so that was last weekend. I got caught in the with my pants down when it came to uh, time t- the uh, time change, which apparently they're trying to get rid of that. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody when I was growing up is like, oh, that's it's so the farmers have more time. Actually, no, it's it's carryover from World War Two. We it started in World War One. They activated it, and then after World War One, they got rid of it. Interestingly enough, World War Two rolled around. The guy who came up with the idea for World War One presented it, and um, he said, "Hey, if I can get the pen, kind of like back in World War One when you guys sign it in the to bill, 
So they signed it in the bill and did not give them the pen. But for whatever reason, and the whole reason we had it was, you know, with a lot of the um, mandatory blackouts at night on the West Coast and the East Coast, they rolled it back so they can have more production time using daylight. But anyhow, for some reason, we never got rid of it. But this weekend, uh, two nights ago, I was on Netflix and I saw um, a advertisement for this sh- movie out of Denmark uh, called Bombardment. Have you guys seen this? I have not. If you're not on Netflix a lot, um, I strongly suggest it. Now, here's the trailer for it. Um, beginning of it's a lot of just sound effects because it's a visual, but you'll get the gist. And it's actually a pretty interesting movie based on a story that I've never heard. And then I'll give you guys the background of the story in which it's based off of. This is the Netflix miniseries based on Operation Carthage, which we'll get into momentarily. Um, the events are true, but I think this is one of those movies where they kind of made up the character of Henry and uh, Sister Teresa just to kind of add some interest to the storyline, to give it to a little firsthand account, kind of build a character to make you feel more at heart for them. Um, I'm going to be very vague about this because I don't want to give any way any of the plot points, but as you heard them say, young Henry was being sent away because he was afraid of the sky. Kind of watching this, you know, this is a, it's a Danish movie, and it's one of those foreign movies which I think is great. All the uh, all the RAF pilots are speaking English. All the Germans are speaking German. All the Danish people are speaking what language are they speaking in Denmark? Um, anyhow, the reason I know it's not English is because they have English overdubs on it. But it's almost like the writers are kind of sticking a little bit to the RAF because there's an incident at the beginning which um, triggers Henry to be so traumatized he can't talk. There's kind of setting up for a pattern of maybe RFA po- RAF pilots not being super accurate or maybe they're just kind of building a bridge to, to what actually did happen in real life and what the movie is strongly based around. 
But uh, go check that on Netflix. It's a very good movie. It's called Bombardment. But here is Operation Carthage, which the movie is based around. On March 21st, 1945, a British air raid on Copenhagen, Denmark, during the Second World War, killed 145 civilians. The target of the raid was the Gestapo headquarters in the city center. The Gestapo headquarters was used for storage of dossiers and the torture of Danish citizens during interrogations. Now, the Gestapo knew that uh, the RAF and the Danish were talking about bombing this facility. And the Gestapo, being such great guys that they are, they figured and they put out a press relief, hey, we're going to take all the Danish prisoners, i.e. 35 of them, and put them in the attic of our building. So if you were to bomb us, you're going to kill 35 Danish prisoners. They made it what they're quote-unquote human shields, and they cover that in the movie. Uh, the, ra- the raid was requested by the members of the Danish resistance movement to free imprisoned members and to destroy the records of the Gestapos and to disrupt their operations. The RAF initially turned down the request because it was too risky due to the location in the crowded city center and the need for low-level bombing, but they approved the raid in early 1945 after repeated requests. Once the approval has been given, planning for the raid took several weeks. Scale models of the large buildings and the surrounding city were built and used by pilots and navigators for preparations of the very low-level attack. Now, Henry, I was thinking of you and Jeff both when I was watching this because they got some very cool in-cockpit footage from the RAF pilots. And I think one of the – I think – trying to look at what one – you know me. I'm not – Mosquitoes. What was the RAF mosquito? Yeah, the De Havilland mosquito. And that's a weird one because the seats are staggered. So the pilot's in the front kind of left, and then the the, uh, navigator's kind of staggered behind him, but to the right. And it almost looked like there was a spot. And the two main characters, I'm pretty sure they shot in in a real uh, mosquito, and then maybe some of them were computer, or they could have all been real. The the flight footage is great in it. The... um, Overall effects and are quite, you know, quite brilliant, brilliantly done. So I, I was thinking of you two the whole time watching. Like, oh, they got, you know, them being the Air Corps fanatics, they they got to check this out. Let's see. Um, you saw this on Netflix. It is on Netflix. It's called the Bombardment. Okay. And um, I, I have not. I'm intrigued at some cool in cockpit stuff from a mosquito. Yep. Uh, the aircraft flew in three waves of six aircrafts with two uh, reconnaissance mosquito B. Force from the Royal Air Force Film Production Unit to record results of the attack. There is a short film taken by the RAF, which is used on other online documentaries, blah, blah, blah. 30 RAF Mustang fighters gave air cover from uh, German aircraft, and these were also attacked by anti-aircraft. I'm sorry. These also attacked anti-aircraft guns during the raid. The force left RAF uh, rest, I'm sorry. The force left RAF rest field in the morning, and it reached Copenhagen around 11 a.m., the raid was carried out at rooftop level, and they show this in the film. They're literally flying right over the rooftops. During the first attack, a mosquito hit a lamppost, damaging its wing, and the aircraft crashed into the Jean d'Arc school about 1.5 kilometers from the Gestapo headquarters, which was the target. And this is where the crux of the movie comes in. Several bombers in the second wave accidentally hit the school because they saw the smoke from the plane crash, thinking it was the smoke from the Gestapo building from the first raid of the the bombardment. Because before they fly in the city, they're all saying, okay, after everybody checks in, as happened during the time, radio silent. So they couldn't, you know, crack radio silence and say, hey, don't don't hit that target. 
Uh, the building, the building that housed the Gestapo was destroyed. 18 prisoners were freed, and the Nazi anti-resistance activities were dis- disrupted. Uh, as I said before, part of the raid was mistakenly directed against the nearby school. The raid caused 125 civilian deaths, including 86 school children and 18 adults in the school. Um, kind of like Pearl Harbor, but without the romance. Um, once again, I'm sure the, the character of Sister Teresa was made up and the storyline of Henry was made up, but it wasn't, it wasn't unbelievable. It was actually... At least the Henry part was very well done. Uh, the Teresa part gets very suspenseful at, at the end, but go out and check it out. It's it's a great movie, especially if you've burned through all your World War II movies. And it's always nice to, to see a World War II movie done in an area which we would all consider foreign land. You know, not American production. Not even, you know, it's nice to see other countries version of Hollywood and their aspect and how they do World War II films. So once again, it is on Netflix. It is called The Bombardment. You'll know it because the screen capture shows two kids completely covered in debris dust, very reminiscent of 9-11. So you'll know the icon hmm. when you see it. And, okay. um, and so check that out. And one more thing. Uh, here's kind of a cool update. You know, when it comes to World War II news, it's usually uh, – you know, old school stuff, but every once in a while, a modern day piece of news comes out. And this came out back in February 13th. A San Diego sailor killed at Pearl Harbor has been finally identified. U.S. Navy sailor killed in Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor has been identified after 80 years. Thanks to the advanced DNA and forensic analysis, military officials said. The, de- the Department of Defense announced on Thursday that the remains of Navy Storekeeper First Class Harry E. Walker was identified last spring. Um, San Diego reporter, the, uh, the San Diego Tribune reported, Walker, a San Diego n- native, will be buried in California next month. Uh, the 36-year-old was assigned to the USS Oklahoma when he died on December 7, 1941. Aerial attacks on USS Naval Base in Hawaii. More than 400 of the battleship's crew were killed. It took several years to recover the bear and bury the remains. Military identified 35 of them in 1947, but new forensic technology became available in 2015, and other remains have been tested. In total, more than 2,300 U.S. troops stationed at Pearl Harbor lost their lives during the attack, which led to the United States' entry into World War II. But finally, after 80-some-odd years, it's nice that his family uh, can at least get you know, closure closure, yeah, and, you know, have a funeral and, you know, a headstone to go to and a place to remember their, their lost family member. That's an interesting piece of news. And interesting. Uh, thanks to this listener. Um, he was, we got a mailbag and if you guys want to email us, reach out to us, email us at, at uh, mail call at WTSP world war com, or as this gentleman did info at D hyphen four com. That is info at D hyphen four com. Subject is world war two Japanese flag. This is one of those new listeners that Henry was talking about, not this particular person, but he was telling me he knows some new listeners who are actually going back and listening to our entire archive. And apparently this gentleman did too, because a while back, um, I think, Henry, you were talking about a Japanese flag, or maybe I was talking about the Japanese flag that I forgot I had purchased on eBay. And the one is, oh, there's a Japanese flag in here. And I was talking about how the eBay person 
father brought it back because they were stationed in Japan after the war. But anyhow, mm-hmm. so this person was listening to that episode. Guys, I recently discovered your podcast, and I have been listening to them pretty much every day. I am a World War, uh, uh, sorry, I I'm a World War II and general history buff, so your content really appeals to me. I'm listening to episode ninety, and one of you mentioned you had a Japanese flag from World War II. My dad was a World War II vet as well, and so were several of my uncles. To cut to the chase, we had some World War II souvenirs in our home, one of which was a World War II Japanese flag. I played with this flag when I was a kid in the 60s, and somehow it survived my countless ballets. I never really knew how it came to be in our household. By the time I found it again, my dad and my uncles had, were well dece- I'm sorry, had been all deceased. I started to research these flags, and a link popped up on my Facebook page for the Odin Society. They do research on these flags, and I try to find, and they try to find the surviving families so they can be reunited with them. I'm assuming he's talking about the flags that have the Japanese writings of all the members of their their battalions. I contacted right. them and eventually sent the flag into them to see if they could identify and return it to any of the surviving family members. They were able to translate the writing, and I found the soldiers' names. And where they had been killed. Here is a brief ex- excerpt of what they found. And he basically lists the soldiers' names, which I'm not going to even try to read. Um, needless to say, I'm very pleased with the outcome. Had it been the other way around, I can only imagine my feelings having an item like this returned to me and my family after all these years. Anyway, I'm not saying one way or the other what you should do. I just thought I'd let you guys know where you or your listeners can find information if any of you guys have Japanese flags with Japanese writing on it, to which I replied back to him, as I just stated, my flag in particular was a bring-home flag from um, the person on eBay. There's no writing on it. His, Her father had just been stationed over there and bought a flag at a store and brought it home, and I explained to them that your flag was brought home by your father. But um, I told him I'd read the story so that if anybody listening has a Japanese flag with writing on it, to go check out the Odin Society, and they can help you identify the names on the flags and if you're interested potentially help you return it to the survivors of a family member listed on that flag you guys got anything else you want to add before we uh, wrap up this episode um yeah i mean if, if you're talking about hey what do we want to mention or plug sure is that what... or anything i mean yeah you know. yeah well i'm about a, within 100 pages of finishing up Tower of Skulls, Richard Frank's book on the Asian Pacific War, 1937 to 1942. That, that's been really, really good book. Not a quick read, mm-hmm. not a quick read at all. Um, so I think, I think my next, well, I've got a couple ideas on what I'm going to read next. What but, are you thinking? Uh, I, well, I made, I may do the library of America trilogy because I want to read, uh, Kernan's volume or, you know, his memoir, and then Samuel Hines, Flights of Passage, his, his memoir, because he was a Marine aviator. So um, it, it'd be kind of interesting, and I'd probably reread with the old read, too, to kind of see within the context of those three. You know, it'll be kind of good to get that perspective. Yeah, I think I was telling you the other day, I think after I, I'm finally getting wrapped up on this Peleliu book, and I think primarily just for to go into it again and maybe to help provide some content for the podcast, I'm going to probably go back into the books that I bought that I started and never finished on the Merrill Marauders. 
uh, just because, you know, we've talked about the um, Edson Raiders here and the Merrill Marauders, right. the whole concept of that came out of the same meeting that uh, generated the uh, the Raiders. But, uh, yeah, so I'm thinking I'm about probably going to dig into those books again um, and just to provide some content and uh, some fresh ideas here. How about you, Jeff? What have you been reading? Uh, yeah, so the the last episode we did, I was reading uh, Bomber Boys, which I'd finished up, which that was really great. That was just for, for kind of like an amateur author, I guess, to be able to put together those five um those five uh, stories uh, so well was, was just really cool. So I switched over. Uh, this is the next one, Hell's Angels. This is a um, by uh, Jay Stout, who happens to be a, uh, he was a, an Air Force fighter pilot himself. Um, I want to say he was a fighter pilot, Dead of Storm era, I, I want to say, in the 90s. Um, but uh, really good history of the 303rd Bomb Group. Um, but it doesn't read like a unit history. You know, it's really, it's really well done. And, and he said when he attacked this particular bomb group, he didn't want to just focus on, you know, the flyboys. He wanted to focus on, you know, when we think of a bomb group, we think of four bomber squadrons, right? So this particular one is 358, 359, 360th, and like the 427th uh, heavy bombardment. But He's talking about the transportation battalion, the quartermasters, you know, the uh, uh, motor pool guys. So you kind of see as he's pulling little bits from these guys as they're still in the States and, you know, your support staff goes that these guys were stationed in Molesworth. So you, your support guys are showing up first. And then uh, what I found really fascinating and, you know, I, gosh, I've read a lot about B-17s and I didn't, I had never known besides Boeing, and besides Vega, or you know Lockheed Vega, Douglas built a good amount of B-17s during the war. I had no idea. And um, of course, the uh, the the memorable thing about it is that one of the particular guys he's talking about, he didn't want a Douglas built B-17. <laughs> <laughs> he said they were just like they weren't even finished. They were just garbage. Wow. And uh, I, obviously, towards the end of the war, I'm sure they got a lot better. But this is very early stages of the air war in Europe. In uh, like November of 42. So really early stages. So I, I, I found that, I found that really fascinating. And then also I did not want to end this episode without a huge, huge thank you to Don for sending this to me. Um, if you can see it, greetings from England. Oh, that's nice. Beautiful, beautifully stitched, you know, take a high um, def photo of that. So we can put it on the website. Um, I, I I totally will, man. And, and, you know, I wanted to take a picture of this when I was in my eighth air force pinks and greens at, at the air show. And I, I had it on display in that shadow box with all the other little personal effects. And it, it got a lot of attention, of course, from the gals. So, um, yeah, it's, I just, I really, appreciate it's, it. it was a weird color. It's, it's for those of you at home and listening, it's a lavender handkerchief with white, um, white edging almost like you would see on a lamp doily. Um, yeah. And it has the 8th Air, Air Corps logo embroidered on it. And it says, greetings from England, 8th Air Corps. And I had been watching it for a few days on eBay because I go in there every once in a while. And I was like, oh, that's something, you know, Jeff would probably like. And then on not last week's uh, redeployment episode, but on the last live episode, you know, Jeff's like, oh, I collect all, I'm collecting all things 8th Air Force. And so I literally went on there during the show and bought it. And the, the court, there's no, you know, written provenance, but according to the person selling it is original embroidered, um, hand stitched 
handkerchief from England from the era, and it and you can tell it's hand stitched because you know anything that would have been done on machine, the embroidering would have been thicker, and you can you know there's it just has just enough imperfections, you know it was done by hand, but it's, yeah. it's very well preserved and it's pretty cool. Nice. I love it, man. I, I really appreciate it. And then lastly, I did want to give a shout out to Liberty Jump Team. Uh, we are going to be talking with one of their guys uh, next week. Uh, his name is Scott Freund. Uh, he's reached out to Henry before. Um, and I had an opportunity. Uh, it's a shame I couldn't make it, but I had an opportunity. And I think Henry was afforded the same opportunity as well to speak at their training event here. Uh, I guess it was would have been next week or the week after. Um, and not only that, they were actually going to put me up in the C-47 right there by the door nice. and watch these guys as they're coming out, you know, as they're jumping. It would have been really cool. Uh, so there was about seven of them there. They set up in the museum kind of along that back, that brick wall, that kind of that eighth Air Force feature wall that I've just recently built. So they had a great display, really, really hospitable. And um, so they, you know, they presented me with a really slick, their, their coin is incredible. You can see it says Normandy there on the blade. And, nice. You know, it, it's a really well done coin. I got a, you know, I, I I've got a ton of these coins through the years, and that's a really nice one. Stands out really, really nice of them to do that. And um, the uh, the good thing about uh, I can't go and I can't speak, but somebody can and will, and it's the uh, guy I'm working with to tell his uncle's story, who was a pathfinder at D-Day. Uh, this uh, you guys have heard me mention where. We're going to make a small independent film here, a little short film, and then hopefully big production um, after that. And uh, so he's going to have the opportunity to talk about his uncle uh, just being a, you know, a, 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 as he explains it, a poor black guy in 1943 that joins the army and uh, meets the girl he ends up marrying. She was also in the military. They meet up in England as he's uh, training. And this is before D-Day. And he doesn't see her again until uh, VE day. <laughs> wow. They end up linking back up as he's redeploying and somehow uh, reconnected. And so, uh, so that's really cool. That lens, you know, like you're saying with the bombardment uh, series, you kind of have to have a little human interest. You may have to create characters that didn't exist, but it, you got to have that human element in it. And this story is beautiful and that it has a human element and it. it's going to have a little bit of a love story because that's what happened um so i don't uh you know i don't want to talk too much more about it but um it, it, i'm really looking forward to doing it i think it's a great story and i think our uh, listeners will be uh, you know really uh interested to see as this as this project unfolds to to learn about the pathfinders and and uh, you know their key role in all the airborne drops in world war ii and going to be a fun project and before we wrap it up i want to give a special shout out to this person on instagram who was tickled pink when we here at the what's the scuttlebutt podcast followed them back on instagram to the fact that they said they're trying to not scream and will their office when they realized we we're following them back so shout out to reenacting underscore yes i know what an underscore is reenacting underscore history underscore 1940s thank you for making my day when i saw your post about how you were tickled pink that we followed you back. And you said, quote, um, my favorite podcast, not my favorite World War II podcast, but my, my, the people from my favorite podcast just followed me back, and I'm trying not to scream. So uh, hopefully. That's uh, pretty cool. Hopefully, that yeah. made my day. You know, 
Sometimes I think me, Jeff, and Henry, we think we're just doing this podcast for ourselves and no one listens. <laughs> and so when we when we see things like that, or like Jeff said, I'm starting to get more and more people follow me on Instagram. It's like, oh, wow, there are people who listen. And then when you actually hear somebody say in public that we're their favorite podcast with two million podcasts out there that we rank as their personal favorite, that just uh, makes it all worth it. So shout it out is, to you, It's really sir. special, man. I mean, I, I've, I've had so many people. I want to do a picture trying to hold all of the books that our listeners have said, I have bought this book because of you mm-hmm. talking about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Henry, do you get uh, any upcoming events? Um, last week I was on war stories with Preston yep. and that will upload in like three or four weeks. They wanted to have a conversation about the Pacific war. Um, we are supposed to do a part three of the We Happy Few 506 podcast with Saul David, but that we just did part two. Uh, part one was just with me. Part three will probably be like May because Saul's book, Devil Dogs, will be coming out into the summer. Um, you guys ever heard of Hardcore History with Dan Carlin? Yes, I've actually had people yeah. strongly suggest it to me. Um, I've, I've been having some email conversations with him. We're supposed to talk on the phone. Nice. Uh, not he, he gave me a couple of dates, not to be on his show or anything, sure. just when we can talk. Yeah. I've heard him talk about my dad's book quite a bit. I know he's a fan. Um, so I'll give you more info on that when I get it. Uh, and then Jocko's assistant was emailing me Friday. Jocko Willick. Fantastic. Yeah. So we were supposed to talk Saturday, not like I was going to be on his show, just yeah. We were going to, he said, I'm trying to coordinate a conversation with you and Jocko Saturday. And then I didn't, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'm available. And then I didn't hear anymore. So hopefully that will happen. And, and you know how it works, guys, yep. I'll, whatever happens from that point, I'll keep you guys posted. And before we wrap it up, as always, we just want to say thanks to our friends at At Computers for sponsoring the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. You can find more information on At Computers at act-capecoral.com. They can help you with all your computer needs. Even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, they can help log in your computer remotely. And if you do live in Southwest Florida, give them a call at 239-283-1120. Read, if you don't, you can call them there. And uh, they can help you with computer repair, networking, video cameras, pretty much anything, anything tech related, they can help you. Give them a call at 239-283-1120. And as always, if you really want to help support the podcast, you can do so by going to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that Patreon link and it's a dollar a month. We have two other plans. One of them's three dollars the other one's seven fifty where you can get a free t-shirt but we would be perfectly happy speaking of pickled t- pickled tickled pink we'd be perfectly happy if you just signed up for a dollar a month plan. And if you head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, you can download all the last, uh, all the archive episodes. You can see the photos. You can see the picture of Jeff's hanky that I bought him and his uh, sweet ass um, challenge coin and all that good stuff. So on behalf of myself, Jeff Copsetta and one Henry Sledge, we want to say thank you to each and every one of you who tune in every week. And furthermore, thanks in... Uh, Howdy, dude, all you new listeners. Our numbers are growing every week. And speaking of supporting the show, if you want to support the show without spending any financial contributions from your part, the biggest way to support the show is to share us with a like-minded friend, someone who's into World War II and the history, and just get the word out there. But until we see each other again next week, we will uh, enjoy the rest of this week, and we hope you do too, and we will talk to you next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 